0: Let me uh, offer to you, to begin with, a couple of reflections or perspectives that are outside the church on those who are inside the church. And these are not going to be surprising to you. Um, Chances are that either you have felt them at different times or you know people who have felt them from different times and see the church this particular way. Two perspectives in particular. Um, One is the perspective that we often run into that, Um, The church is nothing but a, the Christian church is nothing but a money-grabbing, money-sucking organization. Um, And that, that perspective is out there, and I've run into it, I'm sure you have run into it, and some people even inside the church feel that that's why the church exists, to take money from people. Now, on the one hand, we have to be careful and say that one of the evidences of grace in our lives is the fact that we become generous, generous with our time, generous with our stuff, and yes, generous with our money. Um, the New Testament church um, records that the churches of Macedonia, out of their poverty, they scraped together money to give to the, to the church in Jerusalem because it was in need. So I do believe, on the one hand, that an evidence of grace in our lives is that we become more generous and we become more giving. I mean, that's what love is, is to give. But on the other hand, it's, it's not too hard to see where people get the idea that um, the church is kind of a bunch of money-grabbing people. All they're interested in is, is taking your, your checks or your, your money. Um, you stay home and watch uh, Sunday morning television and, and you'll see some of that. You can't escape the sense that it seems to be about, about money. Now, not, not all television shows on Sunday morning are that way, but some of them are. I know that I have been a part at different times of churches where I got the sense, I got the sense that the church was more interested in generating revenue from its people than caring for their souls loving them, and discipling them. And so I understand at one level why there's that perspective out there because I think, think in some respects it's true. Not in every church, but it's certainly out there. Another perspective that we find outside is that the people of the church are nothing but a bunch of hypocrites. That is, they say one thing and they, they do another. Now, on the one hand, we have to acknowledge the fact that every church is imperfect and filled with imperfect people. So if they're looking for perfection, they're not going to find it. But on the other hand, we also have to confess that we have had, in terms of the church at large, we have had some glaring box office failures, Uh, public scandals, sex scandals, uh, exploding marriages. And you add into the fact that um, not just on the clergy um, or the pastors or the leaders of the church, but even the laity, Um, you find the same kinds of compromises and and sins that exist outside the church of various forms of adultery, whether it's an actual act of adultery or whether it's committing adultery against your wife by looking at pornography. Um, That people in various ways still steal. um, Maybe digital piracy, but it's still stealing nonetheless. uh, Or um, different types of gossip and slander. They would look at that and say, well, the church is no different. They're a bunch of hypocrites. Um, then what compounds that is the, the fact that um, publicly we oftentimes isolate and select certain sins which we rail against. Meanwhile, we indulge secretly in other sins, in some kind of a, like a moral amnesia, like it's not so bad. Um, so in that sense, those on the outside oftentimes view the church as somewhat hypocritical. And I think there's truth in both of those perspectives um, for the church. And the question is, is what does the Lord do about a compromised church. A church that looks just like the world. How does the Lord deal with it? Now, some would say the Lord doesn't deal with it, really. It's up to men and women to change the church. Some, frustrated, will leave the church altogether, saying that it's completely apostate, and therefore you might as well live out your Christianity in a closet all by yourself. But I think that the truth of the matter is that, that um, God does care, about his church and he cares deeply about a compromised people and 1 Samuel chapter 2 verses 11 and following shows us how God deals with a compromised church and it is a sobering reality now we covered the first story of 1 Samuel last week which is basically about a, a barren woman who in an act of faith poured out her heart to God asked for a son The Lord was gracious, the Lord gave her a son, they named him Samuel, and at the end of that story, her and her husband take this little boy of three and four years old, and they surrender him to the temple, this church of sorts in the Old Testament. And what is striking is, beginning in chapter 2, verse 12, is we get a description of the moral compromise of the church of the day. Now, there's two ways in which this church compromises, one having to do with with the sons of Eli, two priests, and another with the life and the compromise of Eli himself. There are two different compromises that take place in this chapter. So let me read for you. Um, The story of what we're looking at today begins where the last one left off, in verse 11. It says this. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. So dad went home, the son stayed there. Now here's a description of what's taking place in the place of worship. Now the sons of Eli, Eli's the high priest, he's in charge of everything. Um, The sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he will say, no, you must give it now, or if not, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. So here we have two priests who are corrupting the sacrifices of the people. Then you add to that what is described of them down in verse 22, where we read, Try to keep you up here, I, sorry about that, if you were following, <laughs> verse 22, which says, now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing that um, all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance, entrance of the tent of meeting. Now, the Bible doesn't call people often worthless, but these two priests, the sons of Eli, are introduced as worthless, good-for-nothing men, and that says something, and it also gives us the reason why they're considered worthless and um, good-for-nothing men um, back in verse 12 when it says they did not know the Lord. The pastors of Israel of that day didn't have a relationship with the Lord, defined by faith and love, a sense of awe and fear that showed itself in submission and genuine worship and obedience. They didn't have a relationship with the Lord. And it all starts there, doesn't it? Uh, You get that part right, and you have a genuine relationship with the Lord, and the rest of it sort of works itself out. These men were worthless men, and they were charge of the people of Israel. They were the pastors of the church of the day, worthless men. So you imagine in your mind um, the worst church, and this is probably uh, right up there, um, if not worse. Now, these, these sons were basically guilty of, of this. If I am to put it in a statement, that is exploiting the worship of God for their own private gain exploiting the worship of God, the offerings, and the people who came there for their own personal and private gain. They saw it basically as a way to get what they want. And they did it in two ways. One was with the offering, the other was with the women. They would come along, and the the law of Moses tells us that the priests were allotted certain portions of the animal when it was brought to be sacrificed. And apparently these two men thought that they wanted more. And so they'd come on with their... They're three pronged fork and they jab it into the boiling cauldron and take out whatever in addition to what they already had um, for themselves. They kind of turned the worship of the Lord into a kind of buffet. Um, take what you want. And that isn't all that they did. Um, we find that they took specifically what was the Lord's exclusively by force. Uh, verse 15 reads that, moreover, let's see if I can. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servants would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, uh, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. The fat of the meat, uncooked meat, was the Lord's. Um, Leviticus chapter 3, verse 16. It was his special portion. It's just the way he laid things out um, in the Old Testament. And what they're doing is they're coming and grabbing the meat uh, while it's still fresh and raw. They're taking the Lord's portion. And if the man refuses, then they take it by force. So you have thugs running around the church taking things um, against the will of the people. So they're, they're, they're exploiting God's people for the sake of food or for the sake of meat. And then jump down to verse 22 again. You realize that they're also taking advantage and exploiting the temple worship um, to get sex. That is, they're meeting with the women of Israel um, who are coming, presumably to serve and worship God, taking advantage of them and and, um, getting busy in the temple with these women. And we find out in chapter 4 of 1 Samuel that these two men were married. So in addition to taking advantage of women, they're committing adultery. So that kind of creates for us a picture of this this center of worship. It has been completely corrupted by the sons of Eli, exploiting God's people, exploiting worship, and showing contempt for God to get something, food and sex. Things don't change that much. That's what they wanted, and that's what they took advantage of this worship center for. They took advantage or they exploited They exploited the worship of God for the sake of personal and private gain. Now, that has been something that has plagued the church in different seasons of history um, through the centuries. That is, people have been exploited to fill the coffers of the church and to build cathedrals. Now, a perfect example of that is 15th, 16th century when Martin Luther uh, rose up through the Catholic ranks and saw things that the Catholic church that were doing, were, that were uh, uh, exploiting the poor to build buildings back in Rome. And he said, this is wrong. So the church has had this, this scourge of the leadership taking advantage of the people to acquire their own private interests. Now, I will say that um, that chapter or this this particular story makes me pause as a a pastor and a leader of a church Um, that is it has specific application to leadership of we have to ask ourselves constantly the question why are we doing what we're doing Um, are we compromising things in order to get ahead or are we taking advantage of people are we taking advantage of position for some private purpose Um, notoriety affirmation Um, the pleasure of power, Um, perhaps the sense of self-righteousness of being looked at as a leader. All of those are, are objects of private and personal ambition, which the Bible says is wrong. So we have to ask ourselves constantly, why are we doing what we're doing? Are we using God and his people, or are we being used by God for his people? Very important question. Are we, on the flip side, are we overwhelmed by God's sense of majesty and arrested by his love and mercy and awed by his power and we want to bring his goodness and his glory to his people for their well-being? That's a, it's a rather sobering question. Are we using what God has given and what he's provided and everything that takes place in the worship of his name, are we using it for his sake for our own private sake. And by the way, that's not, just a, that's not just a question that leaders should ask. Every Christian should ask that question. Why do I do what I do? Because in the new covenant, we're all priests. Uh, that is, we're told in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 6, that we are a kingdom of priests. One of the things that happened when Jesus came was he eliminated that, that two-tier system. And that in him, we are now priests to God with direct access to our Holy Father. Therefore, we have a responsibility as the priests in the old day did. Not only priests, but God's holy temple. So we have to ask ourselves the question. If you believe in Christ and you are um, entrusted with the responsibility of reflecting God's glory as a priest and as his temple, why do I do the things I do? Do we do it to to grab attention? Do we do it to get appreciated? Whether it's playing guitar, teaching Sunday school, preaching on Sunday morning, or or tutoring. Why, Why do we do it? Is it for some private purpose? Are we using it in order to fulfill some kind of selfish ambition that we have? Or are we doing it in response to God's grace that understands that I love him, and out of my love for him, I want to be used by him for his name's sake and for his people. I think everybody has to ask that question. Why do you come to church? And since worship for the Christian is no longer just what takes place in a gathering like this, but it's all of life, we have to ask ourselves the question, why do I do what I do not just in here but everywhere? Do I do it from a heart that wants to be used by God for his people, or am I using life, this precious gift that God has given to me, to pursue some private advantage? It could be money, it could be anything. I find it to be a sobering thing. That's that's kind of the first layer, if you will, of compromise in the church is... is Basically, that they were exploiting God and his people for their own private purposes, and people still do that today. But there's another layer of compromise that isn't attached to the sons of Eli, but to Eli himself. What I want you to notice is that there is a powerful contrast that the writer of this book wants us to understand. He is going to, the writer, is going to go and compare the parenting of these two wicked, worthless priests to the parenting of Samuel. You'll notice right in the middle of this dark passage of judgment, it's like it pans to a different place or it pans to a different kind of um, brilliant reflection in the middle of this darkness. It switches from focusing on the sons of Eli to focusing on the parents of 1 Samuel. So we read in verse 18 that Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and and, and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for this petition she has asked of the Lord, so then they would return home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters, and the young man Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. This is like a right turn in the middle of our story. But it serves a very important purpose of establishing contrast. That's how biblical writers and story writers make their point, is they compare and contrast. So you have these, these really wicked sons, and then all of a sudden switches over, and you see this mother who loves her son, each year bringing a little little, little robe to her son Samuel, her boy. So you see the, a mother's love. You see that mother is blessed by the priest to have more children. And in the end, she leaves, and you find her son Samuel flourishing. Mother's love, a mother is blessed, and her surrendered son is flourishing. Now, the next, the verses right after, focus on Eli, the father. So you have a focus on a mother, you have a focus on a father. Where, again, we read, and I've already read it, but I'm going to read it again. Now, Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings with all these people. Know, my sons, it is no good report that I hear um, the people of the Lord spreading abroad. This is publicly uh, well-known, obviously, their corruption Verse 25, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, that's a a high-handed, intentional, premeditated sin. Who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was in the will of the Lord to put them to death. Earlier scene, mother's love, mother blessed, surrendered son flourishing. Here we find a father grieving, a father rebuking and his sons cursed by God. There's an intentional contrast focused on two parents. Now, we might think that Eli was brave or courageous in confronting his sons and rebuking them for their corruption. I think, however, in light of what follows, it's actually quite cowardly. Because these men are exploiting the worship of God, they're taking what is rightfully the Lord's, and they're taking advantage of women under his nose. They didn't just need a verbal warning. He needed to act as the leader of that temple process. He needed to act decisively and remove them, if not execute them. Uh, Law of Moses is clear. You commit adultery anywhere, and it is carries with the death penalty. So all he gives them is a verbal warning, and he allows it to continue. That would be a little bit like if I had a really bad son, allowing him to make meth in my basement and distribute it out on the streets, knowing full well he was doing it and letting him do it in my home. Not only would he be responsible for corrupting the lives of those in the community but I would be responsible for allowing him to do it in my home. Eli is held responsible for retaining these two men and not removing and or executing them. And so the Lord comes to him through a messenger a prophet and the prophet comes and says And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, thus says the Lord. And then switch down to verse 29. Like this is what the Lord thinks and this this is what you're doing. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? What the Lord condemns him for is when he made a choice to retain the priests at the expense of the people and at the expense of the Lord's honor, what he was in effect doing was honoring his sons over the Lord. Or to put it in another way, he, his, his kids came first. His kids came first. The Lord came second or third. He honored his children above the Lord. Now, as I said, there's a pretty deep contrast and a powerful application in here. Because if you contrast once again, what is it that Hannah did in the first story? She honors the Lord's f- Lord first and she willingly surrenders her son to the Lord. Eli doesn't do that. He's the exact opposite. He honors his sons first. And is willing to allow the name of the Lord to be drugged in the dirt. And the people of the Lord to be exploited. Hannah is a, is a representation of someone who's got it right. Lord first. Kid second. Or you can husband, kid, whatever. And then um, Eli is exactly the opposite. He puts his kids first. And the needs of the people and the glory of the Lord second. Now... I think if we paused right here, those of us who are parents, I think we could s- see how this could happen. I, I know of many instances where Christian men and women have been willing to compromise integrity, biblical truth, biblical ethics, and side with their children. I mean, because they pull our affections out, right? Like just, it's really easy to do. Is to allow children to be first. And the Lord second. So that biblical commands are compromised. Why? Well, bottom of the line is because I honor my kids more than the Lord. I cherish them more than I cherish the Lord. And that that is a constant temptation for God's people. To put the Lord second um, under their children. And would anybody argue that there are many Christian people who prioritize everything, especially in our culture, prioritize everything, their time, their money, their, their um, vacations, their worship around their children because we live in a very child-centered culture where they become the central component to the family that drives the family. Now, don't misunderstand children are a precious gift of the Lord and how we treat them is a way of honoring the Lord. But they never drive the car. And insofar as we allow children to be first in our lives, in principle, we commit the same sin that Eli committed. And as priests of the Lord and his holy temple, we have compromised ourselves and profaned his name. Jesus taught us, You know, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then these other things will be added to you. That Jesus clearly taught us, if you love father, mother, or children more than me, then you have no place with me. That is, you're unworthy of me. All through the Bible, the first place is always given to the Lord to honor him, to honor his word above people, and not just above people, but anything. So you see, there's, there's really there's two layers of, of, of compromise. One on the part of his sons who are exploiting, using people for their own purposes. And there's Eli's sin who honors his sons over the Lord, both of which I think are applicable. Why do we do what we do? For what purpose? Is it for the Lord and his people or is it for me? And when it comes to how I organize and prioritize my life, is the Lord at the center and everything else revolves and orbits around him or am I or my children or something else at the center? And insofar as the church compromises those things, we profane our purpose and we find ourselves in a compromised position and God's mission is is diminished. And the Lord comes to Eli, and as a result, he takes ownership. Contrary to what I said at the beginning, that somehow the Lord isn't really concerned about a compromised church. No, he's very passionate about it. Um, That is both good news and bad news. Bad news for those who would seek to corrupt it, and good news for those who are under that oppressive kind of um, leadership. So he comes to him and says, behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house. Um, so that there will be not an old man in your house. You go on and you can read the judgment for yourself, but it's not pretty. It's horrifying. Bottom line is the house of Eli is going to be destroyed. God is going to purge his church, his people. He's going to destroy them. That's, that's, kind of a, that's kind of a scary reality. That this is, this, is, this is the Lord's church. It's not my church. It's not anybody else's church. It's the Lord's church. And John in the Revelation chapter 1 tells us that Jesus walks among his churches like lampstands and he deals with them. Which means we ought to constantly be asking ourselves some important questions. Why are we doing what we're doing? Is there anything that's, that's, that's higher than the Lord in terms of honoring? And is everything, my time and money, is it all organized and prioritized around honoring him and caring for his people? Or is it something else? Because he will actively judge and discipline his church. Peter told us that the judgment begins with the house of God. Before he comes and judges the world, he will purify his people. Now, you might say, Dan, that's, <laughs> that's kind of heavy. Uh, that's kind of a downer. I brought a friend with me, and I was hoping for a real uplifting message. It's <laughs> visitor, and you're talking about judgment. Let's, a lot of the Bible is filled with some dark moments. And it's not because the Lord wants to lay upon us some black whip. God gives us these because he is gracious. Warnings like this are are intended not to to destroy, but they're intended to keep people who love the Lord in the corral. Uh, They're intended to speak to those who might be wandering in the church and living a compromised life to say, hey, you're in the wrong place. That is a loving thing and a gracious thing for God to be able to communicate to us that, hey, you're living a life of compromise. And I am graciously telling you this now. It's also a gracious means by which God may awaken those who don't know the Lord to realize, wow, I don't know even know if I have a relationship like the two sons of Eli. So it functions in a very positive way if we take the time... If we have the ears to hear, eyes to see, and the heart to ponder, where am I really before the Lord? That's, that's the warning portion of this. But it's not without hope because the Lord not only purges, but he also renews. The Lord never gives up on his church. And that also is here in this passage. You'll notice scattered all through the story, references always back to Samuel, the little boy who's growing in the Lord. So you have eleven uh, two eleven Samuel ministering before the Lord, contrasted with the sons of Eli, exploiting worship twelve through seventeen, then back to Samuel, who grows in the presence of the Lord, chapter two, verse twenty one or Eli um, switch contrast, rebukes his evil sons twenty two through twenty five Samuel again grows in favor with the Lord and people verse twenty six Um, Contrasted again, negative. The house of Eli is condemned, 27 through 36. Again, focusing on the positive. Samuel ministering before the Lord. He weaves this golden thread all through this story. I know you can't read this unless you're Superman. I don't want you to read it. I just want you to notice that every one of those little gold statements speaks of hope. That the Lord is raising up a man by the name of Samuel in the context of this horrible and corrupt environment because he's going to change it. And God has been faithful through the ages to do just this, to raise people up through whom he would renew his people. There's always hope. So God is judging and he's saving. He's disciplining and he's renewing because it's his house and we can look to him to do just that. Ultimately, the church is his, which which is why I have hope for the church. It's not because you trust in men or pastors or leaders or bishops because the Lord's in charge. There's hope. There's hope. God never abandons his church. And one final thing that needs to be pointed out, has to be pointed out, is that this this story points Samuel and the people of that time and us toward someone bigger than Samuel. You can't skip right in the middle of the darkness that the Lord says, and I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. It's going to build a house, a faithful priest, who will minister forever. Now, I think this goes way beyond the replacement of the house of Eli with the house of Zadok. Kings to a faithful priest who would minister forever and here you see the ideas of kingship and priesthood start to come together in this book pointing us toward ultimately our faith and our hope toward a priest that's unlike any other priest a priest who will not exploit his people but a priest who would give for his people A priest who would take upon his own shoulders the sins of his people and walk up to the altar and place not an animal on the altar of judgment, but place his own life in their place. A priest who would give life and forgiveness. A priest who is is infinitely powerful and yet at the same time sympathetic to the weaknesses of his people. Uh, A priest who is exalted to the highest place in the universe and yet at the same time who is humble and meek of heart. That is our high priest, Jesus. And I'll tell you, we hear this all the time, but this is the true statement. Ultimately, our faith rests not in pastors or institutions but in the only priest that deserves our faith, who intercedes for us each and every moment because he loves us. And it's to him, it's to him and his name that we live, not exploiting life or Jesus or anything else, but living life for his sake and for his people's sake. And the only one worthy of honoring above all else over your career, over your children, over your wife, over your own life. And those who have come to know him even just a bit know that he is worth it. He is worth placing at the highest place of honor in our lives, to live for him completely. So I want to close with a kind of a simple question, and that is have you compromised your life as a priest? In God's temple. Is God really the first place of honor in your life? Or is something else there? Are you living for some private gain? And if so, then uh, God is gracious. If he has brought that to your attention, then it's time for us as a church or as individuals to repent of it. And acknowledge it and confess it to the Lord and say, Lord, help me to turn this around. Because, again, um, when God's people honor him above all else and they're not seeking their own private gain but they're wanting to be used by Christ for the people of Christ, well then the church is healthy. And then the Lord looks and he smiles on his church and he rejoices over her. So ask the question of yourself. This is between you and the Lord and, and if there's something in the way then, then we need to deal with it before the Lord and then, um, then I will pray. So let's take a couple of moments just to analyze our own lives and, and ask ourselves that question. Lord, be merciful to us, according to your steadfast love. Lord, we are a, a broken people, prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. We're just grateful that what you started, you will complete. And we can trust in that. We can trust that if we are in your hand, that you will never let us go, and nobody and all the powers of hell can remove our lives from your hand. Lord, we pray for the grace to be able to uh, know with saints of old that your love is better than life know that there's nothing in heaven or on earth that we desire besides you that to discover you is to discover the pearl of great price the treasure hidden in the field something so worth everything we don't want to use your blessings or your gifts for our own private advantage Lord we want by way of the heart to honor you in all that we do know that you're good and reflect your goodness in our joy, in our worship, in our thanksgiving, our gratitude. But we ask your forgiveness if things have come into the center of our lives. Hobbies, relationships which we know are inappropriate and sinful. even the good things that you've brought into our lives Lord if we have attached ourselves too much to them so that they are the priority not you we just ask be gracious forgive and renew we know that you do not give up on your church and so we just we cry out ask in the name of Jesus that you would continue your work of renewal and discipline because the most important thing in life is seeing your face we look forward with anticipation so do your work up the new ground give us grace to repent